0: Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Three Little Words. In this episode of Interchange, we welcome back Holly Buck, whose new book is Ending Fossil Fuels, Why Net Zero is Not Enough, published by Verso. And as we did in our previous show with Buck, which was called Capturing the Carbon Imaginary, will feature music from Polish jazz pianist and composer Shostov Komeda. Komeda was born in 1931, the same year that E.O. Hulbert, a physicist at the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory, published a paper in the journal Physical Review, titled The Temperature of the Lower Atmosphere of the Earth, where he stated that the carbon dioxide theory of the ice ages is a possible theory supporting the theory of the greenhouse effect and global warming first proposed by Swedish chemist and physicist Svante Arrhenius in 1896. We're listening to Svantetic, a composition from Komeda's classic album Astigmatic, recorded in 1965. Svantetic is not dedicated to Svante Arrhenius, but rather to Svante Forster, a Swedish poet who was a friend of Komeda. 1965 is the same year that Lyndon Johnson's President's Science Advisory Committee stated that pollutants have altered on a global scale the carbon dioxide content of the air, with effects that could be deleterious from the point of view of human beings. 56 years later this year, on October 28th, the House Oversight Committee convened a hearing entitled, Fueling the Climate Crisis, exposing Big Oil's disinformation campaign to prevent climate action, which included several oil and gas company executives. They were asked under oath by committee chairwoman Carolyn Maloney if they would pledge to no longer spend money to oppose efforts to reduce emissions and address climate change. This is how BP America CEO David Lawler responded. We have stopped all reputational advertising at BP. But
1: will you take the pledge? I know that you've taken steps in the right direction. I heard that in your testimony, thank you. Will you take the pledge, yes or no? Well, for your specific pledge, what we're pledging to do is advocate for low-carbon policies that do, in fact, take the company and the world to net zero.
0: Since 1965, no country has put more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere than the United States. The 278 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide the U.S. has emitted to the atmosphere over the past half century represents over one-fifth of global emissions during that time. Strangely, that coincides with the rise of the U.S. prison population. Hollybuck's Buck's first book, After Geoengineering, addressed questions about the technological solutionism of climate intervention, while her new book, Ending Fossil Fuels, makes plain that to stop the extraction and burning of fossil fuels means putting an end to an industry with massive wealth and political power, and with existential entanglements in so many of the ways we even imagine what life is supposed to look like. In it, she exposes what she calls the cruel optimism of net zero an idea fully supported, as we heard from BP America CEO David Lawler, by Big Oil and Gas. But she also offers a phase-out toolbox for the 2020s, which lays out five demands to pursue, including the nationalization of fossil fuel companies. And now, Three Little Words with Holly Jean Buck on Interchange on WFHB. In the first book, it seemed like you were just kind of running through what's what's being talked about, what might be possible, what are even just kind of sketched on blackboards about what might be possible. Is there a way in which your research just has continued on from this book, or uh, did you try to go in a different direction, or is this one more grounded in what you think is the actual possible chances for doing particular things?
1: You know, this book is... Similar to the last in that it outlines things that are going to be both technically and politically challenging. Mm -hmm. In some ways, it's a continuation in that the first book talked a lot about technologies to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And one of the main takeaways from considering those is that we really need to minimize emissions as much as we can because we're not going to be able to build a supermassive carbon removal infrastructure, we'll be lucky to build a modest-sized carbon removal infrastructure. Even that will be really hard. So it's really imperative to cut emissions as much as we can, and to do that, we need to be thinking about fossil fuel production. And so that's why this—that's the focus of this new book.
0: Let's kind of walk through the convenient topics that you offer at the at the end of your book. Um, five things you want other people you know, want people to discuss because discussion is one of the things that was kind of still missing, right? The, the sort of common discussion among people about the situation we're in. I think that's the first thing I'd like to ask you about before we get into those is, are the discussions becoming more apparent or readily available in the public sphere?
1: I've seen, you know, Fox News stories about wildfires that do mention climate change I think we've had a lot of severe weather events, as well as problems with the electricity grid in Texas, in California, and other places that have made people think a bit more about the future of energy and climate. But it's still pretty far from where we need to be. I think there's a lot of people that still, from my direct experience, hear climate change and want to talk about recycling and things like that, because the education and what decarbonization is, why it's important, what it's going to entail is still pretty slim. Mm,
0: so, not too much happening <laughs> <laughs> with colleagues and friends and neighbors. It is, a, it is a thing where I find myself wanting to talk about it and then not quite knowing how I'm going to affect the room, right? This is like the conversations need to happen at, at the level on the street. We need to understand these things. And I wanted to ask you also uh, if you'd read the uh, William Volman Carbon Ideologies books. There's a two volume books. Did you read those?
1: I have. I read parts of them, Uh as uh as probably many people have.
0: I I read the whole thing, luckily, because it was – Well, it's on audiobook, believe it or not. (laughs) And uh, so I was able to do lots of dog walks with Volman. Uh, uh, (laughs) One thing that struck me about that book was that it seemed like – most people have no idea that, one, there is climate change, that is something that's happening at a, at a pace or a, in a, on a course to you know, irreparably change everything, and two, that it's tied to energy use, you know, or fossil fuel use, or energy consumption, right? As I think you mentioned throughout the book, there are parts of the world that don't have any of this in the first place, and they're very excited to get it. Energy, right? <laughs> Electricity. So there's this a col- a collision right, of the need to recognize this problem with a large part of the world that wants a different, better, cleaner, you know, electrified life.
1: Yeah, in one of my research papers, I've called this a double unseeing, meaning that lots of times people on the ground don't understand what the experts' visions, plans, modeling around climate and energy look like. But at the same time, the experts aren't seeing the people on the ground either. Mm -hmm. They're not seeing their priorities, their concerns, how they might feel about having all this new infrastructure deployed across their land, you know, Mm -hmm. what the, the benefits would be to those communities. So both sides are kind of not seeing the full picture.
0: This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Three Little Words, and our guest is Holly Buck, author of Ending Fossil Fuels. Why net zero is not enough, just out from Verso. We're facing the hard truth that decarbonization technologies lag behind our need for them, while the fossil fuel industry and their politicians play a net zero fiddle near the growing flames of climate catastrophe. Let's walk through those five specific things again um, that your book deals with, or do you want people to think about? One in particular, and the book actually makes this a part of its title why net zero is not enough. I'm going to guess a lot of people don't know what that means. What is net zero?
1: Net zero refers to having some amount of continued or so called residual positive emissions of greenhouse gases that are balanced by negative emissions or carbon removals um, so that the positive and the negative cancel each other out and you have this net zero state of emissions. So carbon removals would be achieved by land-based methods like planting forests, like farming in different ways that store carbon in the soils, as well as industrial or geological approaches that include Biomass-fired power plants where the carbon is captured and injected into rocks underground, or even machines that take carbon directly from the atmosphere. It's still that needs to be transported and injected deep underground. This is a, you know, it's an idea that's been embraced by many, many countries, states, cities, companies, an increasing number around the world. Um, It's kind of the the viral target is net zero by mid-century, which is in line with the science. And just to go back to what you were saying about, you know, the temporalities of all this, I mean, we're just so late to mitigation that net zero is being grasped at as this time-buying strategy basically, because we don't have all the technologies for full decarbonization at hand, um, at scale. So net zero is kind of a a bridge to deeper decarbonization towards the end of the century.
0: Now, you do stress that it seems to be um, uh, a rhetorical cover in some ways for sort of the status quo of extraction and production.
1: Yeah, that's what a lot of climate activists are worried about. Mm. And that's definitely a concern. We could also imagine net zero that actually works for people and communities. But the default is probably to be kind of a, a scam or a fig leaf or whatever.
0: And, and mostly because it's been jumped on. You say when th- you think when people uh, buy in so readily to an idea that there's got to be something that they can manipulate about it?
1: Well, I think in some cases that's true, but in other cases, I think there are actually a lot of genuine actors out there that want to mm-hmm. do something about climate. Sure. I mean, yeah, we've all seen a lot of climate impacts. So things like the wildfires mm-hmm. in in the Bay Area in California, Suddenly there was a lot of tech investment in climate change, you know, because people saw the sky was orange and they got scared.
0: I guess the problem for me in having conversations is that I am clearly unable to assess much of it, right? So I do have to come to books like yours and other books like it to try to understand the idea of these technologies and the possibilities of them being implemented. A lot of the technology that has to be put into practice here is existing. Uh, It just uh, exists on a very, very small scale the decarbonization technologies, right? Indeed, yeah. What do you think is the most prominent of that those technologies?
1: I mean, obviously, we have things that we know work and have scaled up um, actually far rapidly than experts forecast, which are wind and solar. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of other energy sources that, you know, we're kind of on the edge of starting to deploy, like enhanced geothermal, like green hydrogen, we're going to need a lot more new transmission lines, uh, high voltage transmission lines for electrifying everything. Um, I also think that there's a role for some of the newer nuclear technologies, too, for reliable baseload power. Um, so like on the energy side, there's all of that. There's also carbon removal technologies that exist at a demonstration scale, but are still immature, expensive, and won't scale up without a lot of government support.
0: It's time for a break. This is Repetition, another from Shistov Komeda performed live in Copenhagen in 1965. In response to Johnson's President's Science Advisory Committee report, American Petroleum Institute President Frank Eichert described the role of oil and gasoline specifically in causing climate change. Quote, the report states, "...the pollution from internal combustion engines is so serious and is growing so fast that an alternative non-polluting means of powering automobiles, buses, and trucks is likely to become a national necessity." Unquote. He then went further. The substance of the report is that there is still time to save the world's peoples from the catastrophic consequence of pollution, but the time is running out. That's the president of the Lobby Association for Big Oil, folks. More with Holly Buck when Interchange returns. To Interchange, our guest is Holly Buck, and our show is Three Little Words on Ending Fossil Fuels. In this segment, we confront the role that computing power will have to play in the global tracking of carbon emissions. We'll need an energy surveillance network of enormous scope. Yeah, one of the the points that comes through and always comes through is the cost of things, right? The the ability to you know basically, as you say, sort of create a whole new industry, a whole new way of doing things that that's going to cost somebody a lot of money, and and the the sort of overriding framework of our situation is you know a capitalist framework, uh, an industrial capitalist framework where we have to figure out how to pay for things where nobody wants to get involved if there isn't a profit or their risk isn't, you know, offloaded onto someone else. When that's the case, we do have to think about how governments then are capable of changing that scenario or being a part of it. Is is there a sense for you that there are possibilities for that kind of action?
1: Well, consider that if we had a couple more <laughs> decent uh people in the Senate, Hmm. not even like, you know, a gazillion people, but like maybe like one, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Maybe two or three, you know, that would really change our ability to spend money, not just on climate, but on like really basic things like paid maternity, family leave and stuff like that, you know, lowering prescription drug costs and all that stuff. Like we're just, you know, a few votes away from having been able to do some of that stuff. So it's really in my view about getting people in office that support these things, which is about getting the electorate to be on board with some of the objectives in decarbonization, which involves building coalitions between urban voters and their interests and people in rural communities, um, which is, I mean, this is stuff I think we can do. Hmm. And actually, there's a lot of common ground. Most people support clean air, clean water, um, healthy environments. If you go out and talk to them and if you look at the polling, Mm -hmm. they're just not concerned about climate change as an object necessarily, even though they're really concerned about all the impacts from climate change if you ask them about those impacts. And so I think with more effort and more conversations, we could have some progress here in the next decade or so.
0: One of the things that that's important to think about is how we get this information and how we are influenced by the information that's fed out to us in some ways. So You do discuss uh, in one particular chapter is chapter nine called code. You talk about the social media ecosystem and platform influence and how important it is, but you know how it's had too much power, I suppose, in, in, in a lot of ways. But it's not just about Facebook telling you what to think. It's about how like surveillance capitalism kind of invades this whole idea of sort of monitoring climate, monitoring emissions, et cetera, things like that. You want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so there's kind of two different things I talk about in that chapter. One is just the basic threat that platforms like Facebook or YouTube or Twitter represent to climate action. I mean, we think about, you know, regulating Facebook as kind of like a tech issue, but it's actually a climate action issue as well, because these platforms, they're selling our eyeballs. They're advertiser-driven, Facebook and, and YouTube, Google anyway. And they've figured out that to maximize time on site, you know, feed people more oppositional, more hostile, more emotive content. And so they've really had a damaging effect on the thought that people could come together from different perspectives and agree on a path forward for climate or anything else. I mean, it's, you know, we should be outraged. I think now with um, some of the great reporting that's been done by the Washington Post. With uh, Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower, like people are paying a bit more attention to this, which is great. So, but that's one challenge. And so, you know, regulating these platforms and thinking about how to end them and change them is not really unlike thinking about the problem of how to end fossil fuels. I mean, at the heart of both of these things is public control over corporate power. But the other thing I talk about in that chapter is how the visions of net zero really hinge on kind of creating a planetary computer of some sort. Because, how do you know when net zero happens? You have to know where the emissions are coming from, and you have to know where the carbon is going if it's being removed. And so, that's a tremendous amount of monitoring and tracking, you know, thinking about knowing everything that's going on in a supply chain to, to track the emissions of something knowing if the forests and soils you think are removing carbon actually are. Um, so it's a, a computing challenge. And what happens if you have another one of these mega platforms like Microsoft or Google in the middle of that, that is irresponsible for tracking all the carbon, but maybe um, figuring out a way to make a profit off that by being an intermediary between emitters and removal providers, there's just a lot of questions there around public control and access of this information layer so that people can understand what's going on with all this carbon and hold people accountable for it Um, that I think we need to be thinking about when we're thinking about all of this new infrastructure. It's not just hard infrastructure on the ground. It's also the, the software infrastructure, all the code that's going into this net zero project.
0: This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Three Little Words, and our guest is Holly Buck, author of Ending Fossil Fuels. Why net zero is not enough, just out from Verso. We're facing the hard truth that decarbonization technologies lag behind our need for them, while the fossil fuel industry and their politicians play a net zero fiddle near the growing flames of climate catastrophe. As you note, again, in the book, that the huge number of people in the world have nothing like what I have in front of me right now, right? They don't have this house. They don't have air conditioning. They don't have this computer. They don't have a telephone. They don't have a mobile telephone. They don't have access to any of this stuff. I don't know if this is exactly right, but there's a huge part of this, right? That's about this injustice, we call it, or this inequity between energy consumption and those who do consume it and those who don't or who's territories and, and resources are extracted for other people's use. So, when we just keep talking about how the current structure, the current corporate structure, the current industrial structure, um, the current legal structure, how it can be put to practice or put to use so that it fixes things or attempts to fix things, that's that's kind of where I get stuck.
1: It's a huge mistake to think that fossil fuels are like the defining a defining thing about how we live. There's not an actual reason why we couldn't replace them with renewables. Mm-hmm. Now they they provide more than 84 84% of primary energy. Right. That's a lot when solar and biofuels are just 5%. And yet we we have the technology and capacity to scale those up. So it's kind of a mm. a choice to identify with fossil fuels as kind of our way of life. Mm. I mean, I could definitely see how by the end of the century. We have moved away from fossil fuels completely. So it's, 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 I think it's a choice, really.
0: A major part of this book is still structural, right? It's still about attempting to scale up those other practices, require their own set of problematic things, right? Um, to make solar panels, you create a particular kind of industrial process and an industrial waste, and those solar panels go somewhere, and they are decommissioned. Etc. You talk about the wind problem. I you know, the just the change of um, uh, landscape with having so many wind turbines and how that's been an issue as well. But it's like an entire change of of everything to support an electrified life, right?
1: Yeah, and I think it's going to be more dramatic of a change required, obviously, in in North America because. The spatial patterns of mm-hmm. our lives here are very different than those, for example, in Europe in terms of building size, in terms of how these buildings are spaced apart, and the reliance on automobiles right. and All of that stuff is just a higher energy lifestyle than a European one. And so I think that what you would need to see is a convergence where both a, a North American energy footprint, carbon footprint lifestyle comes to something more like that of Europe. And people in the global south have to increase their energy Um, consumption, because right now they they don't have enough in many places, you know, a, a billion people in the world without access to electricity, another billion without sufficient access to energy. So there needs to be a convergence at a more reasonable level. And there's a lot of kind of precise calculations about what that would be in the literature
0: the key issue uh, here is, and why you're talking about ending fossil fuels is as much about ending the fossil fuel companies uh, or how they, how the f- the focus on fossil fuels block a lot of how we might make these changes and might get closer to some sort of energy equity across the globe if these particular corporations were not so powerful.
1: Yeah. I mean, part of it's about Cor- corporations, but also just kind of more broadly the social relations around fossil fuel production.
0: So what are the social relations that uh, have been created and maintained by a fossil fuel economy?
1: Yeah. So there's a lot of ways we can think about that. We can think about the relations of these corporations and you know the impacts they have on the communities that are living with the extraction. We can think about how half of global oil production and even more of that of reserves is owned by national oil companies, which are fully or majority owned by governments. And so that implies, you know, different social relations between these national oil companies and the state and the people in that state. You could even think about it on, you know, the level of households or communities. A lot of production is very gendered. You go to some of these oil dependent communities and, The average income for men is three times that of women. So there's all sorts of social relations that that we might want to change around fossil fuels, including how some regimes, um, authoritarian regimes, are propped up by fossil fuel rents, basically. Um, So there's just a lot of corruption associated with the fossil fuel industry. So there's plenty of reasons to move away from fossil fuels Independent of climate change, whether that's public health, um, corruption, oppression, etc.
0: It's time for another break. This is Innocent Sorcerers from 1960, another from Polish jazz great Szysztof Komeda. More on why the carbon emissions target of net zero is not enough when Interchange returns. <music> Interchange, again, that was Shistov Komeda with Innocent Sorcerers. In this segment with guest Holly Buck about her new book, Ending Fossil Fuels, we consider the benefits of fossil fuels including the process of synthesizing ammonia from nitrogen gas and hydrogen gas which was discovered by Fritz Haber in 1909 and while this process has supported greater food production it also provided the materials for explosives and pesticides that would be repurposed for chemical warfare I guess that's what we call a mixed blessing Uh, I assume there are multiple similar issues in any of these large industries, right? What we call big industries, right? Big oil, big pharma, big ag. They're all going to have the same relations, aren't they?
1: I mean, it's obviously it's similar, but with the national oil companies, it's just a bit more entangled with the state because governments are driving Income from fossil fuels, you know, with licenses, taxes on production, consumption, et cetera. So it's also about weaning the state off of those fossil fuel revenues. So it's like another layer of complexity, I think.
0: You know, that uh, I think is an extremely complex idea to think that the one thing that certain states have or or national territories not you know bounded territories calling themselves states you know have resources in some supply that they use for money you know if you say you can't use any of this or this is this is not going to you know this is bad for the world and we're going to not let you use it that obviously creates massive issues, and there's probably no one that's gonna say yes to that voluntarily, and that becomes a an issue of supreme conflict, right?
1: Yeah, I think it's important that we acknowledge that each country is in a pretty unique situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not necessarily unique, but they're all different, so there's not just one roadmap to phase out. There needs to be many different roadmaps that are tailored. And it's really on the developed countries and the high carbon polluting countries like the U.S. to support countries in developing roadmaps that work for them, whether that's, you know, with technology transfer um, support for building up the renewable energy infrastructure that will be needed to replace fossil fuels yeah, it's not as simple as saying, okay, everybody needs to be net zero because there's issues about sovereignty and justice there.
0: Uh, you and I talked, or I mentioned via email about the, a House, uh, or a, I don't know if it was House or Senate hearing on uh, whether big oil had you know, obfuscated their knowledge of climate change, right? In the same way that big tobacco had, had lied about you know, their awareness of tobacco and their products causing cancer. So the question of what has fossil fuel done to us is more than just, you know, how they've, you know, managed to keep us all in a particular kind of energy relation, but that they've stopped things from being innovated too.
1: Yeah, I think that they've really blocked a lot of new things, that they're standing in the way of better technologies.
0: Well, why don't they pivot because it's not profitable. I mean, why don't, why, like, this is, again, the reason that obviously the idea of profit is a problem is maybe the problem. Um, because, as you mentioned at the end of the book, you know, the an ideal way for things to change would be for this very industry to actually reverse course, reverse engineer how carbon, you know, the carbon got out a certain way, let's put it in a certain way and have this industry that's already doing the work in this geographic and geologic spaces in the technology end of things, you know, um, they're obviously well-placed to sort of make these technologies do the work. Why, why don't they?
1: You know, I think there's kind of a, a small diversity of responses among companies. Clearly, none of them have like massively transformed, but Some of the European majors have pivoted more in the direction of, you know, offshore wind or renewables. Some have looked more into carbon capture and storage. And then there's some companies that are just like totally behind here. I think that you could see them moving towards carbon removal and or other sources of energy in some scenarios. Right now, just the demand for fossil fuels is still strong enough that that's still, you know, fossil fuels have like an extraordinary profit margin compared to other forms of businesses. They might be willing to trade that in for a lower um, rate of return if that rate of return is more secure or or stable. I actually have a a small, moderate amount of hope for, for transformation pathways, but not without very strong state intervention. Like obviously, we have to force them into new business models.
0: yeah, the, I mean again, that's what comes out strongest to me also is the you know the fact that you that you have a right to continue to harm everyone because it serves a particular economic model and your profit model and profit margins and whatnot. But the idea that we we allow as a society, this kind of thing, these kinds of companies to sort of stop, any change in the body of of the world, basically, because they get to say we don't make enough profit if we do that. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Three Little Words, and our guest is Holly Buck, author of Ending Fossil Fuels, why net zero is not enough, just out from Verso. We're facing the hard truth that decarbonization technologies lag behind our need for them, while the fossil fuel industry and their politicians play a net zero fiddle near the growing flames of climate catastrophe. You know, this inviolable idea that they have a right to exist, at all is confusing to me.
1: Keep in mind how they see it. I mean, all of the stuff we have, and even the fact of our very existence, like many of us would not have been born if it wasn't for the Haber-Bosch process of making fertilizer out of fossil fuels, you know? So our population expanded because of that. Look around your room. You've got like a bunch of stuff made from petrochemicals, like, you know, medicines, consumer products for your face, whatever your shampoo, I don't know. So, you know, those are totally fossil fuel industry talking points. There's also some truth to them. But th- that's their point of view is that like, we've, we the fossil fuel people have brought so much to the world. And so I think there's a way that we need to take into account that point of view, but also say, okay, but that's dated, because now we have alternatives that are much better that don't also kill people the way fossil fuels do, right?
0: Obviously, the idea of population explosion is a bad thing on some level. It creates more need for these particular products. And I'm not saying I don't want to be born, but it's irrelevant whether I was born or not. You know, if it were any other situation, you'd I'd happily argue and let people argue in the, in, in a way that I might want to uh, uh, assume that there's a positive way to look at it, and it's it's not like you can't look at innovations or look at medicines or look at certain things and say these these have positive effects but almost always they have negative ones too and so often really really worse than positive you know so that the balance is never really taken into into account and generally that's yeah. the conversation you get with anybody from the global south you know the balance we, sh- we offload all our negatives to other places
1: yeah i mean when you when i say we have to take into account Benefits from fossil fuels. I'm not thinking about like talking to these like horrible companies. I'm talking, thinking more about how do you have a conversation with the people at a company, with the workers about transition to something else? You don't lead with you're killing people. You need to disappear. You, you lead with. I understand that this has been profitable for your community and it's part of your identity but there's other stuff that will actually serve you better so let's explore what that is and how to bring it here in a way that benefits you like you know because part of the change here it's it's a cultural change it's the fact that some of these workers feel that they've brought something important and now people are turning their backs on them So there's some amount of empathy, you know, on the ground, you know, not for these like, you know, the people who are the capitalists who are making all the profit and walking away with billions, but for for the people that are workers and voters that we need to convince about this.
0: Well, I do understand what you're saying. I just think that that's, I mean, you can actually quantify that number of people and it's not a very large number of people. No, where you just talked about billions who don't have fe- who don't have any energy, you know. Yeah, but
1: look at look at the power they wield. Like, not necessarily them themselves, but the idea of them. Look at sure. how Joe Manchin just single handedly like right. crashed a lot of the climate action. So yeah, it's a small number of people, maybe about seventy four thousand coal jobs in the right. U S. at this point. But right. it's still
0: see that's what I'm saying. That can't be important. I mean, I get what you're saying. I really do. But, but the system has, is what it is to create these kinds of difficulties for us to make these changes or to change the way the state operates or to change the way the capitalist operates. It makes Joe Manchin's possible. And, you know, believing in, in, in making sure 74,000 people feel better or have an identity... I mean, I got that idea and I like the idea always you want to say, you know, work is important and people want to have a positive sense of what they do. That's there's nothing wrong with that. But I mean, billions of people will be suffering pretty badly pretty soon, as far as I can tell from the science I've read. Now, you can argue about it on some level, but it's already in that space Right? Like to oh, me, yeah, I wouldn't to,
1: argue about it. Millions yeah. of people are suffering right now.
0: Yeah. So to me, I don't understand these calculations generally, except as you know, talking about it from inside this very insular space of this particular politics, this particular country. It's a very difficult one because it's a terrible country on a lot of levels internationally. You know, because we we hold all these things kind of hostage. It's just it's just hard because it's the obviously the injustice of it is immense.
1: Yeah, but I think we can identify the particular obstacles like like Joe Manchin and, you know, certain views in the communities that he's mm. ostensibly representing and like, go to those places and talk to those people and give them better jobs mm. like that. That's within our power to work on. <laughs>
0: It's time for our final break. This is Three Little Words, performed by Shistov Komeda from live at Warsaw Philharmonic Hall in 1961. Two years earlier, physicist Edward Teller warned the American Petroleum Institute that one consequence of increasing levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere would be melting polar ice and the submerging of coastal cities, including New York, or Empire City. In our final segment with Holly Buck on ending fossil fuels, what is to be done. Welcome back to Interchange. In our final segment with Ending Fossil Fuels author Holly Jean Buck, we turn to the human dilemma of confronting the perspective of the energy-empowered individual, a self only possible through fossil fuel use, and what seems the only path forward, a politics that insists on state intervention. One of the things you mentioned was this ISDS, International Arbitration, that is just unreal. I mean, the fact that it exists is crazy. First, can you yeah. can you d- detail it? I'm sure nobody, <laughs> nobody knows what I'm no, talking I mean,
1: about. This is like one of the wonkier things. And I'm very grateful to Professor Kyla Tianhara, who took her time to explain this to me, because that's what she works on. It's crazy. Um, yeah, basically, it's something called... Um, Investor state dispute settlement. Mm-hmm. So if you are a company and you go to another country and make an investment, say in a fossil fuel project, um, and that country does something to bans your fossil fuel project or even something that just makes it like less profitable, there's a bunch of different treaties that govern this. Um, you can take up this investors state dispute where there's an arbiter that that comes in that's appointed and decides what will happen but basically it's always in the favor of these companies so they end up with a lot, a lot of money from these governments even when they don't go produce the fossil fuels if the government is taking some action that would regulate fossil fuels so it's it's really a disgrace it's something that Needs to be changed, and I encourage listeners to <laughs> check out her, her work and Google this.
0: <laughs> it's crazy, and but it's so perfect as an example of how things are structured to serve that particular interest, right? To imagine that a profit-seeking entity has more power than a sovereign nation or a mm-hmm. sovereign country to say, we don't want that to happen, and they, th- somebody can say whether that they get fined for it or that they should have to pay back by not allowing someone to profit off something the state itself or the country itself deems irresponsible or harmful.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm dating myself, but yeah. <laughs> when we used to go protest in front of the World Bank and the mm-hmm. IMF like back in 2000, mm-hmm. I mean, these were the sorts of things that- we were concerned about, right. you know, these kind of obscure, shadowy international things that were taking away power from people.
0: To me, it's on a scale, obviously it's on a massive scale, but, you know, the, the way that the states in the U.S. have power, right, is that um, municipalities can pass all sorts of municipal laws that the state can, you know, basically say, you can't do that. Uh, here in Bloomington, we tried to ban plastic bags, right? And the state wouldn't, you know, said that's illegal. So the state sort of trumps the power of the people unless it changes the makeup of the state, which then has to change the laws. It's just kind of fascinating because it's just it's designed to not allow these changes that, that we need. I don't know. It's 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 maddening. I don't know how to say it. I don't know how else to say it. One thing I wanted to note, which I thought was really fascinating, and I think um, maybe on page 78, is somebody you, you interviewed had talked about the, the way that fossil fuels and just having sort of ready ener- a ready energy environment like our own, right, so we can turn on the lights and have air conditioning and heat, et cetera, et cetera, have all the things we have, uh, has created uh, what he ca- I, this person called an individuated power, right? So, it sort of creates the sense of, I, I think it doubles down on the idea of individualism, right? You have the capacity to exist outside of communities of care and health because you can take care of yourself in a, a kind of bubble of energy.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a association of freedom or independence mm-hmm. with, with fossil fuels.
0: One of the things you stress is moving into a culture that plans, but a culture that plans has to understand you know, what the things they're doing are for and why we do them and what the benefits are of doing them are versus a culture that kind of is, is what planned by their, commercial actions, you know, <laughs> you know, I don't I don't quite know. We aren't planners in that sense. You know, people generally don't think they're involved in how our society is planned or our our world is created around us. The things we buy, the actions we take are are sort of second nature in some sense. They're not a part of how we plan our lives or plan the society's life, right? But we need to be planning
1: the future. Yeah, so I'm comfortable with you know, saying we need a planned economy. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of my point is just that that's actually a cultural shift, not just right. an economic shift. And that we, we need this democratic planning capacity. And if we develop that, we can also phase out other things that are killing or harming people, whether those be single-use plastics or, you know, tech platforms or whatever. Right. Um, It's a capacity that we're going to need for this century, not just for climate change, but for our democratic integrity. (laughs) I mean, to the extent that we have democracies right now, you know, for other aspects of the environmental crisis beyond climate. So the, the cultural shift there is, you know, understanding that actually this unplanned thing of letting markets just dictate a lot. It's it's not serving us, and we could be doing it better and embracing that and embracing participating in it.
0: This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Three Little Words, and our guest is Holly Buck, author of Ending Fossil Fuels, why net zero is not enough, just out from Verso. We're facing the hard truth that decarbonization technologies lag behind our need for them, while the fossil fuel industry and their politicians play a net zero fiddle near the growing flames of climate catastrophe. Now you mentioned that uh, a lot could have happened about fifty years ago, right? We had the Clean Air Act in nineteen seventy-seven. We had uh, the ozone, you know, layer. We uh, apparently had defeated, although at the same time it seems like maybe not. But obviously, at this point, and and again, I date myself too, right? So the the fact that you you know you had to wait in long lines at the at the gas gas t- uh, gas station at the ga- at the pump to get gas in the in the energy crisis of the late seventies. This was a period of possibility, but this is where you know this is one of those instructive times where where things were stopped. I mean, obviously, Carter Carter leaves office, the Democrat leaves office and Reagan comes in. And, you know, the symbology of that is Carter having solar panels on the White House and Reagan removing them. 50 years on, things could have been a lot different, right?
1: Yeah, we had some, you know, relatively ambitious targets for, for solar. Back then, we had a, a crisis that some people tried to say, you know, we could be more resilient if we had a different energy landscape. So it was a missed opportunity. And I'm very worried about the energy crisis right now with blackouts and supply Mm -hmm. restrictions in China and India and gas prices, um, natural gas prices in, in Europe being something like six times higher than they were earlier this year. Like what's going to be the takeaway? Is it going to be a retrenchment or fossil fuels? Are we really going to say, you know what, these systems aren't working for us anymore. We want to have security over our own supply and be resilient and building more renewables is what's going to deliver that. We'll see what happens.
0: Yeah. So, what's what's your advice for the listener? Uh, you, again, you have the 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 epilogue at the back that gives us ideas about how to talk about these things. But um, you do have a couple of things about trying to say, you know, we can we can do things like reverse engineering. There is there is technology we can use. We can enact these things that stop oil exploration, things like that. You know, when when you talk before about politics or you talk about Joe Manchin, you know, you're talking about trying to. To ensure a particular kind of politics is in charge, so we haven't come here as a Republican country, so we've had Democrats and Republicans, right we've ha- We have a state that has brought us here and fossil fuels has been a part of it. So it's why I get I guess somewhat nervous about talking about politics because I don't know what's happened that we can make work for us in politics, even if a few people get in, as you say. A few people change things. A few people give us a chance to change things. But we have an, a pub- political system that gives us two-year difference, you know, a two-year change, a six-year change, a four-year change, right? So politics becomes very difficult and very unstable to put our money in on an existential crisis.
1: Sure, those are big limitations to the system we have.
0: Right, right. So if you if you get to the point where you think this is a continuing problem. And we will not decarbonize, and that carbon will continue to to heat up the atmosphere. Because I think we're well past the 1.5. Just in what's already in the atmosphere, will be coming from the oceans. You know, how do you sit into this? You know, how do you how do you think about that future?
1: You know, if you're feeling very desperate about climate change, you can read my book on geoengineering. But <laughs> I will say, with regards to fossil fuel phase out, you know, there's things we can do in the next decade to set us up for the multi-decade project of phasing out fossil fuels. Mm. To do those things, we're going to need more people in office that want to do it. So we have to work with different sorts of people, build broader coalitions in rural places. So, I mean even if you're not like a political organizer there's things you can do in your own life to make things incrementally better towards that end like you know go go start conversations with people you wouldn't normally talk to curb your your intuitive reactions on social media about what you think people on the other side of the spectrum are like and mm-hmm. say you know what today I'm going to go talk to one of these people and see if I can get anywhere with them rather than just like being angry about yeah. them right and you know disconnect from these platforms that are trying to use you and your emotions and your literal brain chemistry to make a profit um You know, not to be super didactic about it, but like that's what I would offer to some individuals who maybe aren't part of a political movement. But if you are part of a political movement, that's fantastic because we can be organizing around things that, you know, people on both sides of this political spectrum care about, which I think are things like health the environments, things like curbing the power of big tech and big companies, which a lot of Republicans, you know, would like to do also, right? Um, So building that political power, then once that's there, implementing some of the tools in the toolbox I talk about in this book, like first things like reforming and ending subsidies for fossil fuels, um, bans on exploration, extraction, export, technology that uses fossil fuels, Once those are in place, there's more of a framework to start with some of the harder items like allocating permission to extract fossil fuels, nationalizing fossil fuel companies. You know, if we really made progress in this decade towards building the political power, I think those are viable things in a future. And I think that they're definitely cost-effective compared to like the damages of climate change.
0: That's our show. We'll close with a final composition by Shistov Komeda. This is Fair Weather. Thanks to Holly Buck for joining us again and repeating the hard truth that industrial forces releasing tons of carbon into the atmosphere will not go gently to their dismantling. Not while there's money to be made. Damn the consequences. Buck's new book is Ending Fossil Fuels, published by Verso. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Kate Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening.